get in God's word. You're talking Christmas here. As you make your way back to your seat, if you've got a Bible, um, meet me in the book of Matthew chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the chair in front of you. It was a blue Bible there. Matthew is the very first book of what we call the New Testament. It's the second half of the Bible. Uh, We'll be in Matthew chapter 2 in just a moment. So yesterday we came home after a long day. The night before we had a big Christmas party for our worship team. Yesterday we were out downtown all day, came home super exhausted, a fun time. And then some crazy people showed up in our front steps at about like 8.30, 9 o'clock last night. All I hear are these, these tambourines and drums and, and uh, the guitar out there. And they had, uh, they had a parranda out there. You guys know what that is? So in Puerto Rican culture, and at this, I'm told also in Cuban as well, uh, there's a tradition during the Christmas season for a bunch of hooligans, a.k.a. friends of yours, <laughs> to show up unannounced at your house with a large group of people singing uh, different kind of folk Christmas songs at your front steps until you open the door, upon which time they enter forcefully um, <laughs> and then expect you to feed them, all right? And so is a parranda, right? You know, it's not quite a, it's a lot of fun um, just hearing a different classic old school songs. For me, it's, it's, a, it's a fun memory. Uh, my, my grandpa would love to sing parranda songs. And, and, um, and so it just, it just is a, a fun experience, a great celebration, a way to kind of kick off the Christmas season. But the, the big thing about the parranda is the people show up unannounced. They just come out of nowhere. And when they come, they make a scene. They make us, in fact, there was a, a third house involved last night that, that, that didn't open their front door because apparently they weren't home. And as I was looking on Facebook, their neighbor was posting on Facebook like, hey, we're about to find out what was going on because we heard all this racket outside your house. And so that's, that's just the way it rolls with the parranda uh, doing this unannounced Christmas caroling. When we think about the Christmas story, in so many ways, it parallels and doesn't parallel a parranda. Because the truth is, Jesus comes out of almost seemingly nowhere when he shows up on the scene. Unannounced, unexpected. God discerned in his great wisdom, according to Galatians, tells us when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. When God knew the time was right and the the path had been paved, he sent Jesus, who was God in human flesh, to come on this earth. He showed up unannounced. But watch this. He doesn't show up, though, with a loud sound attracting everybody and the neighbors. In fact, there is no trumpet sounding when Jesus comes on the scene. There are no timbales, no tambourines, no people shouting and screaming like we would expect when God himself comes to the earth. We would expect that. And that's not what happens. In fact, his coming was so obscure That God showed up on this earth and people didn't even notice. People did not even notice. And some who heard rumors of it early on ignored it. The God of eternity, catch this, the king of kings, the one who made the very earth he's about to step on, showed up on the scene and no one noticed. You see, the Christmas story carries these these tensions of this great announcement and these humble beginnings of the perfect God coming through the lineage on earth, earthly speaking, 
that's very broken. And this is what God does to give us what we now know as Christmas. Man, for us to understand the beauty and the glory of Christmas, we got to get these aspects of the story. You see, the reason Jesus came unannounced, the reason he didn't make a big scene, is because God is rarely impressed by large crowds. He's not impressed by the outward externals of people. In fact, there's times when Jesus began to attract crowds, and it says he'd isolate, he'd hide himself to get away. Other times, people will be following him, and he finds this as a good time to say one of his, quote, hard sayings. The kind of statements that make people like, okay, I don't know if I should be following this guy anymore. Like the time he says, if you want to be my disciples, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, I did not know I was into cannibalism here, and they peace out. And the disciples are like, okay, I know you speak in metaphor. What's going on here? So, so Jesus isn't, isn't concerned with trying to attract these big groups. He always cares most about what's in the heart. He always cares about what's inside. Yesterday when we were downtown, we walked by the Bentley shop. And I just kind of just stood at the window there. My, my kids were like, what's, what's the matter, Bobby? I'm just, I'm just watching, just looking at this thing. I was like, why does this thing cost $300,000? And as I began to research the Bentley, Above many things, it's handcrafted, it's got the leather interior, it's got all the gadgets and bells and whistles, but there's one thing. It's the engine that makes it unique. You see, it's not made by a a traditional V8 or W12 engine, which I've never heard about until I researched this, but by a 6.75 liter turbocharged V8. I don't know what that means, (laughs) all right? But what I read was, that this engine is built by hand by a single individual. And only three to four engines are built every day. And so because of what's under the hood, the Bentley gets his value. And so in like manner, God cares about what's inside. He said, that, that's what's valuable. You, you can play the game, you can do the show externally, but I want to know what's in the heart. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he doesn't attract the crowd. He wants to get to the heart of individuals, and he wants to do that for you today. He wants to get in the heart, and he wants to produce in each of us an unrivaled pursuit of Jesus, where there are no competitors, there is no one competing and vying for our attention like the way that God has our focus. And so this part of the Christmas story is we're about to find out. And ask the question, what what does Jesus mean to you? What kind of focus and attention does he have in your life? Because that's what's under the hood. And so would you meet me in the book of Matthew chapter 2? We're going to find here in this story that some people were encountered with the truth of God coming to this earth and were simply apathetic. Some were skeptical. Some were agitated. Some were fearful. Many of the same emotions you and I face when we're confronted with Jesus. For some of us, Jesus makes us uncomfortable. We know there's a cost involved in following him. Some of you here today might be skeptical, like, hey, I don't know about this God thing. I just showed up because it's December 16th and I know I should be here. Others say, hey, I came to support someone. But maybe you're skeptical, and I want you to know you're at the right place as a skeptic. We invite, we want skeptics here at the brook. Exploring because true skepticism seeks to find the truth. All right? And though there, there were people like that in Jesus' day, and there were others who were just straight up agitated by him. Like this, this bothers him. 
All right, so let's take a look at the book of Matthew chapter 2. If you're able, would you rise to your feet, please, as I read? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word for us. It says, now after, in verse 1, after Jesus was born, notice the time marker there. It was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, notice what they say here, where is he? who's been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to what? Worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse five, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word Notice that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, say this with me, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Can you say worshipped him? Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, I pray that you would speak through me by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in me. God, I pray that you would give me courage and discernment. Anoint my words, I pray, God, for your glory's sake. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for those who are exploring the faith, for those who are unsure where they stand. I pray, God, you'd bless us with ears to hear and eyes to see what your Holy Spirit wants us to hear and see. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to see the unrivaled devotion, the pursuit that these magi had of Jesus And I hope that as we unpack God's word here, that you be challenged by this. You see, it's starting out in this opening verse. It says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So notice, this story takes place after the birth of Jesus, not at the birth, all right? So you guys can go home and throw away all your nativity scenes because the wise men weren't there. Now don't throw them away. Keep them. They're fun. They're nice. We got two in our house, all right? And we'll have one outside next week, all right? But this was after Jesus was born that they came to Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Bethlehem. Bethlehem's an important city because it's the city where the great king David was born and lived. And if you remember, God gave David a promise that one of his descendants would be a king that endures forever. So here in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. The Magi come to see him. Behold, it says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born 
king of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose. Wise men from the east. The word there technically is magi. We get the word magician from magi. But magi were those who most likely were astronomers. They studied the skies. They had their eyes in the sky often. They saw the planets and the stars. So no doubt they would have noticed when something abnormal took place in the sky. These magi were known to be wise men because they were very discerning. And it says they came from the east. We don't know exactly where in the east. but We do know a similar term is used in the book of Daniel referring to wise men who lived in Babylon. And it makes sense that they did, they did come from Babylon because the Jewish people lived in Babylon in exile for a while. And no doubt the Jewish faith was taught about. So these magi would have heard of this hope of a king that would come. And so these magi come from the east. And they come looking for him who was born king of the Jews. See, the book of Matthew it's, it's like Matthew is unpacking, un, he's unveiling a purpose here. And he's giving us little secrets along the way. You ever go on a hike in the woods and you're unfamiliar with the territory, you know that if it's not a paved path, you've got to mark where you've been. You can mark it on a tree. Don't leave breadcrumbs, according to Hansel and Gretel. But you can mark it on a tree so that you know on your way back you can identify your path. And what Matthew is doing here, he's laying little markers for us to put things together. We saw in previous weeks that Jesus' ancestry was a pretty messed up one. He came from a checkered past, and his family was really broken. We saw that, that what it shows is it reveals that the need of humanity is for someone to save us from our sins. We saw that Jesus is a descendant of David, and that his earthly father, Joseph, was also a descendant of David. We also saw in a story that Mary and Joseph... Um, we're found to be with child, but not through sexual relations. I mean, talk about this. How, how, how deflating of this, the great news this must have been. Hey, Mary, you're pregnant. She didn't have a chance to find out she was pregnant any other way. So there goes the birth announcement. She didn't have a gender reveal party because the angel said you're having a boy. And she didn't get to go through the book to find out his name because it says, and you name him Jesus. And before they're thinking about it, I wonder how he's going to be. Oh, he's going to be great, and he'll save his people from their sins. Like, there, there's no spoiler. There's, I mean, there's only spoiler here. All right? There's, there's no mystery. It's a boy. His name is Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. And so Matthew has laid out for us this context of what to expect. And here Jesus, he says, is born in Bethlehem. That's not where Mary and Joseph were from. They were from a town called Nazareth. But because of a census, they had to go back to their hometown to, to identify themselves as those from Bethlehem. And that's how they show up there. And so these magi, it says, they came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now it's interesting, why do they show up in Jerusalem? So it says that they followed a star that brought them there, but it appears that this star had vanished. It'll come back on the scene later in this, in this chapter. They show up in Jerusalem because undoubtedly that's where you would expect to find a king. In the palace, wouldn't you? And I love this about the Christmas story because time and again we're finding out that God doesn't do things the way we would do it. God doesn't pick the people that we would have picked. God has a way of doing things that's unique to his own wisdom. And as a side note here, God is still in the business of doing things differently. In fact, the Bible says that he chose us, people that you wouldn't expect him to pick. 
First Corinthians says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And you're like, did you just insult me? No, no God did, right? No. Um, no, what, what he's saying is, God, God's not going to come, didn't come down and say, let me pick the most perfect scenario that everyone expects. God's like, no, I don't operate like that. I'm going to do things in such a way that those who think they know better will be shamed by it. And so these wise men come to Jerusalem looking for this child. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. I love this passage in Jeremiah where it talks about this future king that God's people are waiting for, referring to Jesus. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So they're like, we heard about the promise of a king. We saw this star in the sky, and now we're coming to look for him. And so now we're left wondering, well, why did you think that when you saw this star to come to Jerusalem? Well, why did you even think that a king was born when you saw a star? We can go outside and see stars, but we don't think they're telling us to go across the country to look for someone. Well, they say we saw his star, which is to tell us that they had something in mind. And what they had in mind was the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, which says that a star shall come out of Jacob and he will be a ruler. And from that point on, God had given clues about a star or a light that's going to shine, and from that light will come a ruler and a king. And so they say, hey, we found his star. Where is the king of the Jews? Well, also important in this story is not just the Magi, but this next character who is Herod. Herod. Notice what it says about Herod. What's his title? Herod the king. Where does Herod live? In Jerusalem, which makes Herod the king of the Jews. Herod was a madman genius, as historical books say. He was a guy who wanted power. He was friends of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar made him governor of the land, but when Caesar was, uh, was assassinated, he became friends with the Roman Senate, and they told him, if you squash down rebellions in this region, we'll give you the title king of the Jews. And for three years... Herod was a madman killing people to establish his kind of peace. And he was also a very insecure kind of guy. In fact, whenever he felt threatened that someone was trying to take over his throne, he would kill those people to the tune of three of his sons and one of his wives. So he was a man that spared no expense to maintain his title as king of the Jews. And that is the backdrop we find when the wise men show up saying, hey, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And small wonder why it says that after this in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They're like, are we going to see Hurricane Herod now? Like, what's about to go down if you're telling him that another king has been born about to take his throne? And Herod had been around the Jewish people enough to know that there was a prophecy about a child to be born. The wise men said they've come to worship this king. This word worship means to prostrate oneself at the feet of someone greater. It it literally has the idea of kissing the feet. 
And these wise men say, we've come from as far as likely Babylon or Persia, several months' journey to find a baby to worship at his feet. The same word for worship when Jesus says, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve him only. They're making a statement about the identity of this baby. Like, move over, boss baby. Here's God baby. So here it is. Herod receives word of these men talking about the king of the Jews and how they want to worship him. The very thing Herod wants. People's praise. He's troubled and he asks the chief priests, where, where is this child supposed to be born? He's he's got motives here. And notice what it says here in verse 4. Assembling the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, and then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They didn't have to search out the answer for this question. They knew it off the top. They didn't need to ask Alexa or Google or Siri, who wouldn't have had the answer probably anyway, but they, they didn't need to find this out. They knew by memory that the Messiah was supposed to be born in Bethlehem because he's a descendant of David. So they tell him in Bethlehem, they quote, Matthew quotes the verse here. And so in verse 7, Herod's like, all right. He gets to the wise men secretly and asks them where, uh, how long ago they saw this star. He's trying to gauge how old this child is. Later on, we'll find out that most likely Jesus was two years old or younger. By the way, Herod responds. We'll talk about that next week. He sends off the wise men, and they go back out looking for this child who was born the king. And in verse 6 it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. But there's a glaring omission here, family. This is where we're talking about pursuit. Notice who goes to look for Jesus. It's the wise men. Notice who doesn't go look for Jesus. Surely Herod, but those who said he's to be born in Bethlehem. Notice the people who can quote the Bible did not go and even pursue their king. See, what we find here is a a, a very important truth when it comes to our pursuit and what's under the hood of our hearts. God doesn't care if you can quote the scriptures as much as he cares about whether or not you're pursuing Jesus. it, It doesn't matter what religious activities we take part in. God wants to know where your heart is. And this glaring omission says that there were religious leaders in Jesus' day who knew the Bible inside out, who quoted a verse on the dime, but did not take a step toward worshiping him. For us, this is something that's got to grab our attention. And I think this is why Jesus didn't come like a paranda when he showed up on earth. Because he wanted to see where people's hearts were truly at. The crowd doesn't say anything about our heart. But when we're pressed to make a decision, that's when it matters most. Now we can say, what, why didn't the Jewish people, why didn't the leaders go look for him? Maybe they were afraid of Herod. Maybe they're afraid of what he'd do. But the truth of the matter is for all of us, the cost for following Jesus can be very high. It could be high in your schools, when your classmates look down on you for bringing a Bible to class. 
It could be high in your workplace when your coworkers saying that Christianity is a crutch or the idea of worshiping God is so archaic and antiquated. That there, there could be a real fear of rejection here. And there were leaders who maybe were afraid. And there were others who were just skeptical. They were just like, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But they didn't go because likely they were skeptical. Like, sure, we've seen this one before. How many others are going to raise up saying that they're the Messiah? And I think in like manner, many of us are here today and maybe are a little skeptical when it comes to the story of Jesus coming as God, born of a virgin, to live a life of perfection, to die on a cross that we deserved and are raised from the dead. And so the truth is, when we come to grips with the Christmas story, we've also got to come to a decision. Where will we be? What is under the hood of our hearts? Is there an unrivaled devotion like we're about to see in the Magi? Is there an agitation? We're just bothered by the name of Jesus like Herod was? Are we skeptical or fearful like the religious leaders were? Where are you at? You know, fear has a way of really squelching passion. I love watching football. And when a wide receiver gets a pass thrown to him from the quarterback, they call him alligator arms if he doesn't stretch out for that ball. And most wide receivers who fail to stretch out do so because they're afraid they're about to get hit. So they short arm the pass in fear of getting nailed, and that fear causes them to not reach. In the same way, this is how the Christian life works. There's a real cost involved in following Jesus. At the brook, we don't sugarcoat this thing. But we will tell you, and we mean this with our whole heart, that following Jesus is better than anything else. It's hard. You will be rejected, maybe insulted, looked down upon. But in Christ, the joy of following him is far greater. And so I appeal to you today with alligator arms to not fear and stretch and say, God, I need you. I'm, I'm done with trying to, try to you know, monitor things on my own strength, trying to manage my life. God, I need you wholeheartedly, unashamed. We need a generation of young people who are courageous in their faith. We need high school students who are vocal about Jesus, who are wise, no doubt, and discerning, but who are courageous. We need single men and women who chart a different course in our society, who show a redemptive value of their singleness and not finding their identity in other people, but in Christ. Our generation needs to see marriages who look to Jesus and say, hey, we, we struggle here, but Jesus can sustain us. Arms outstretched to him. Herod failed. The religious leaders fail. But let's see what the Magi do here. It says in verse 9 that they, after listening to Herod, went on their way. And behold, notice that, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. That is to tell us that the star had ceased to be visible and now became visible again, leading them to Bethlehem. And I love the description it gives us here in verse 10. When they saw the star, not the baby, but the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why did they get so excited at the sight of a star? 
because they knew that this star would stop over the house of the King of Kings, of eternal God incarnate here in the flesh. And imagine when they see that star stop and they see that house and they walk to that house, perhaps trembling, knowing that what's in there is the God who saves. And so indeed they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In a writing language, they use a device that goes by A-B-B-A. They rejoiced exceeding with exceeding rejoicing. Notice that A's being the, the rejoicing and the greatly in the middle is to show the extent of that great excitement they faced as they approached the house. This pursuit of theirs was unrivaled. Verse 11, and going into the house, not the stable, they were no longer there, but they were now in a home. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and then they fell down and did the very thing they had set out to do months before. They worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These were costly gifts. These wise men had to be quite wealthy. Gold then as it is now is something quite valuable. Frankincense is valuable. Myrrh is valuable. In fact, myrrh was used for embalming purposes, among other scented purposes. And some see a foreshadowing here of them giving this child myrrh, knowing his mission ultimately was to die. And so here the Magi come before Jesus, led by the star, with gifts fitting for a king. And then we're told in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own to their own country by another way. Jesus indeed is the king that all have been waiting for, and it ain't Herod. It ain't Herod. See, the way the book of Matthew works, it shows us these breadcrumbs or these markers throughout the way that Jesus is the great king. Because what was spoken at his birth hung over him his whole life and then literally at the cross. You might recall when Jesus stands before Pilate and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. Like, those are your words. Matthew 27, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then at the cross, they said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. The Magi announcement that the King of the Jews came was declared throughout Jesus' life, even on the cross. But here's the great irony. They thought on the cross, if you're truly the king, save yourself, not knowing that because he's truly the king, he came to die to save others. The king of the Jews came to reign as a king over sin and then reign over death to bring forgiveness to people like you and people like me. And this is what the, the, the story of Jesus coming points to, 
consistently. Here comes the king of the Jews. And what do they do upon his resurrection from the dead? But they bow down and worship him just like the Magi did at his birth. So from start to finish, Jesus is king. And from start to finish, he's worthy to be worshipped. I want to tell you guys in response as we conclude here, I want you to think about worship here. Because we have a choice to make as we're confronted with Jesus. Are we going to be agitated by him? Are we going to be skeptical? Are we going to be fearful? Or are we going to have an unrivaled pursuit and worship of him? The, the Magi did this, and this is how it looked. First, their worship is faith with legs. Literally, they walked to this king. They took steps forward to pursue Jesus. The same kinds of steps God is calling you to make to worship him. Stepping toward the Bible, stepping down in prayer, stepping in worship and in serving him. It's faith with legs kind of worship. We see a sincerity about their worship. They show up in Jerusalem because they don't know where to go. And God sends them to Bethlehem. And they're like, we've got one goal here. They're sincere. They want to worship Jesus. We see that they're relentless. They're like, hey, we're in Jerusalem. He's not here. Lead me, God. Lead us to this child. And then they surrender all as part of their worship. They gave of their wealth to him. They laid aside their reputation for him. They devoted their time for him. And ultimately, they risked their lives for him when they didn't go back to Herod. That's the kind of worship God wants in all of his followers who look to him and say, God, I give you all that I am. I surrender everything with the expressed purpose of worshiping you. Man, we learn so much by these wise men. Many think there are three of them because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But it doesn't tell us how many. Nonetheless, that song, We Three Kings, is a song I want to read for you, not sing. I want you to pay attention to the words of this song, song as they reflect their unrivaled pursuit. It says, we three kings of Orient, that's the east, are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising, voices raising, worshiping God on high. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume. Breathes a life of gathering gloom. That's the death. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying. Sealed in the stone cold tomb. And then his final verse. Glorious now. Behold him, arise, king and God, and sacrifice. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Sounds through the earth and skies. Church family, today we have not a star that leads us to a house, but a message that leads us to the cross. That's where our king, the great king of kings, laid down his life and took death for us to defeat our greatest foe and to offer us forgiveness. If you're here today, you've never experienced God's forgiveness. It's one choice away, saying, God, forgive me. I believe Jesus died for me, and I want to live for him. 
And that living for him is the kind of unrivaled pursuit the Magi had, and God is calling each of us to reflect. It's what's under the hood, family, that matters the most. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't want the majesty of this Advent season to pass us by without some real heart check going on, God. For every man or woman here, Lord, God, I pray, God, that they would come face to face with you and that they begin to really search their hearts and say, God, what what do I believe about Jesus? God, for the man or woman who's here today who knows a lot about you, maybe could quote the Bible, but it's not stepping toward you daily. God, I pray that you would stop them in their tracks. Show them their heart. I pray, God, they will humble themselves before you. For those who are skeptics today, God, maybe they've heard things about Christianity that aren't true. Maybe they've never read the Bible for themselves. God, I pray that they would pause and do that and say, okay, what, what, is, what does the Bible have to say about this Jesus? Because we know, Lord, that in Jesus we have redemption. Jesus says that he gives us life abundantly. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless us with that kind of life as we turn to you. We love you, God. We thank you, God, for continuing to speak to us. And so, Lord, we pray, God, have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.